0: Great to see you all on this gloomy Advent Sunday. It's the second Sunday in Advent. And Advent is a time where the church historically has remembered that they are waiting on the arrival of a king. And that connects all the way back to before Christ was born, when Israel was awaiting the promised Messiah. And it connects to us as we await for the return of Jesus, the promised King. And so this Advent season, we are, during our sermon series um, time, we are looking at what Jesus did and what he will do. And this is the work of Christ, but it involves who Jesus is. We get to know who he is by what he has done and what he will do and what he's doing now. And so our hope with this series is that we just simply know Christ better as we celebrate him, as we enter into a season where it's so easy to get distracted. It's so easy to kind of lose focus and forget why we're actually even celebrating. And so our hope is that this will be a time where we actually kind of go a little bit deeper in understanding who Jesus is and what he has done. And historically, the church has um, had this kind of mantra to describe his work. It's Christ has come, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. This is a mantra. It's meant to be a meditation meditation. It's meant to be something that you say, and then it kind of allows you to deeply consider and reflect on the truth that it conveys. And so I know that um, for a lot of people, the holiday season is stressful, and it's painful, and it's difficult. And just even beyond the holiday season, I want this to kind of be a tool that you all can use in real life that helps bring Christ into your difficulty, into your pain, into your frustration, into your suffering. And its simplicity is really important because in a time of suffering, it's hard to remember anything super complex. And so just by having this as a resource of kind of like calling to mind that Jesus has come, that he has died, that he is risen, and that he will come again, It will help Jesus come into that difficulty or that joy, that celebration. And so um, today we are looking at the second part of the mantra that Christ has died. And this isn't um, just something that the church has fabricated out of thin air. This is actually something that we find in Scripture itself. This is just a summary of what the Scriptures teach us, and where we find it kind of most clearly illustrated is in Philippians chapter 2, in this Christ hymn. Um, And this is Paul quoting probably one of the earliest hymns that was written about Jesus. It has a musical component to it. It has a rhythm to it, and so he is quoting in this letter to the Philippians, something that they would have been familiar with in singing about who Jesus is. And so Paul is bringing this to their minds to try and encourage them in humility. And so I'm going to read um, first from Philippians 2, but then I'm also going to read from Isaiah 53, because Isaiah um, has something to say about the death of Christ, and what it means, and what it did. So first, you can read along with me in Philippians 2, and I'm going to start in verse 5 and go through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And then from Isaiah. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried away our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time where we get to slow down, and where we get to consider just a couple of verses this morning. And yet, as we get into them, as we start to wrestle with what it means that you sent your son, that he took on human flesh, that he lived a life perfectly, and that he was crucified. God, I ask that you would not allow us to gloss over it, that you would not allow us to... um, be distracted by anything else, but that you would allow the wonder of the cross to transform us, to change us. And Lord, that your spirit would help us to continue to believe that truly you have forgiven us by the death of your son. pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I was talking with my family about the sermon as I do sometimes, you can say you're sorry to them later. Um, And one of my daughters, you can probably guess who if you know them, asked me, Dad, why are you talking about the crucifixion? It's Christmas. I was like, that's a good question. That's a good question. We all know, even she knows, Christmas is about the birth of Jesus. So to bring in the death of Jesus... To Christmas, it seems like a downer. It seems like, why would you do that? Let's just like, can we just think about Jesus as a baby in the manger? Isn't that nice? And so I talked to her about that. But there's something in there. I think that there's a sentiment in there that is in all of us where we want a kind of sanitized, feel-good, warm-and-fuzzy version of, Je- of Jesus even just for a little bit, like even just for a moment, we just want to think about Jesus as a nice, sweet baby and his mom nursing him and putting him to sleep. Like there's just something about that that we like. And it's because, right, he's human and we're human. And so we connect to that. We understand it. We understand what it means to see a baby being cared for and Um, growing under the nurturing of his or her parents. We get that. And yet, Philippians and the rest of Scripture, even Jesus' very teaching and his life, would say that if you only look at that, you're completely missing the point. He was born to die. That's why he was born. And so if you take the birth of Jesus and you leave the death of Jesus you actually don't have Jesus anymore. You have a God after your own imagination, after your own feelings, after your own preferences. And so we have to talk about the death of Jesus because the death of Jesus is the very point of his birth. Just like the death of Jesus is the very point of his resurrection, just like the resurrection of Jesus is the very point Pointing to his ascension and his return. These are an interconnected unit. They all go together. And so, even though we're focusing on one because there's a lot there, it's important to remember that this is all connected to the overall whole of the life of Jesus. And so, as we consider that Christ has died this morning, we're going to be looking at the cross and we're going to be turning our attention to the cross. And that's what Philippians 2 does. Philippians 2, verses 6 through 11, again, this hymn, it's structured so that at the very center of this hymn is this repetition of the word death. Death, 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 even death on a cross. And so we're supposed to put our attention on it and focus on it, on the death of Christ on the cross. And as we do that, I want us to consider the the cross this morning in three ways. First, the offense of the cross. So the cross is offensive. Second, the power of the cross. And then third, the glory of the cross. And so as we first pick up the offense of the cross, I want to talk to you a little bit about the historical significance of the cross. It's something we're just very disconnected from. We don't have any type of like cultural equal to how the cross figured and featured in the life of a person living in Jerusalem in the first century. The cross was a symbol, but it was a symbol because it was real. The cross was a torture device. It was an instrument of death. And it was an instrument of death that was very intentionally built to portray the superiority of Rome, of the Roman Empire. They used it intentionally as a device to put their enemies to death or criminals to death. Anyone who threatened the Roman Empire, they would hang on a cross for everyone to see. And there's different ways to do it. The most kind of like well-known way is the one with the crossbeam, where the person is kind of like like this, suspended. But other ways would be that they would actually just like pierce through somebody with a spear, and that was the cross. And then they hang them there in public for people to see. And so imagine for a minute that you are. An Israelite living in occupied territory. You're living under the authority of Rome. And you've seen friends, you've seen people that you know hanging on a cross as you walk by on your way to work or on your way to the market. And you can smell their death, and they're hanging there naked the humiliation of it, the trauma of it. It's offensive. In fact, this was so common, this reaction, this visceral reaction to the cross, that the word for cross in Greek actually became basically like a swear word. It became a word that when you heard it, you would kind of cringe. You would, you would kind of lose your stomach a little bit. Because it would conjure to mind those people that you've seen destroyed by it. And you would be reminded that unless you act right in Rome, as Romans do, you would be on the cross. And so the cross is incredibly offensive. And there's this historical significance to it that is very intentional in terms of the plan of God to have Jesus on a Roman cross. He wanted this public. He wanted the humiliation of the cross to be seen to be felt, a visceral reaction. When I was thinking about this, I was thinking about I was just grasping for like what like what have I ever experienced that's anything like that? And the only thing that I could think of was um and Maybe some of you are not old enough to remember this. Some of you are much older, and so you'll remember this just fine. Um, but September 11th in Manhattan, when I watched the towers fall, I saw the image, but something internally collapsed, I think, in anyone who saw it. Just the scale of the horror the scale of the destruction, the magnitude of it. It was something about our humanity that fell at the same time. We saw something that was beautiful, that was a kind of like this portrayal of goodness collapse into rubble. And it became known as ground zero, of course. And for a number of months... After the collapse of those towers, as they're still sifting through the rubble fields, it's still smoldering. The pieces were still steaming. And so I was thinking, like, that is the effect of the cross. There's this, there's this horrific reality of suffering that it holds up, that it elevates, it suspends so that we can see it, so that we're confronted by it. And so when we read here in Philippians 2 that this this Jesus, this one who is God, who put on human flesh and lived a perfect, obedient, loving, beautiful life, when we read that he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross... You have to be offended. You have to be offended. And you have to either ask and cry out, why on earth would that happen? Or you have to do something. You have to twist reality. You have to pretend like it didn't happen. You have to just say, you know what? That's a lie. That never happened. Jesus didn't exist. But what you can't do is you can't just pretend like your life can just keep going. Like, if God died on a cross in that way, then you have to reevaluate everything. And your whole life has to be lived in trying to reckon with why on earth that would happen. And what we see, and part of the offense, what we see in Isaiah, is we start to get kind of an explanation of why Jesus was killed in that way. And it's because he bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. And when we looked on him, we looked on him on the cross and we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. What that means is like, we don't want a king like that. We, we don't want a king like that. And in the ancient Near East, you have to understand that the relationship between king and God was very close. And so a, the ruler of a nation would be the one who had the closest relationship with God. And in a lot of different cultures, they would actually make themselves gods. And so to say that this one, this servant, Isaiah's promising a king who is a servant, is going to be smitten, stricken, afflicted. We don't want that king. He says he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that he received was our chastisement. And So this is another, a deeper part of the offense of the cross. Is that... Jesus is on that cross because of you. Jesus is on the cross because of your sin. He's on the cross because of your desire to be your own God. Because of your rejection of God's law, of his will for your life. And so if you imagine yourself to go back a couple thousand years plus into history... And to be walking by the place where Jesus was crucified. And you saw his pain. You smelled the stench of death on him. You saw his humiliation. And then all of a sudden it hits you. He has taken the stain of my sin. And that's why he's there. He has taken the stench of my rebellion and has taken on the death that accompanies it. It is because of me. It completely outs any kind of pretending that we have, that we're okay. It completely outs any type of show that we make that we are sufficient by ourselves, that we can pay for the things that we've done wrong, that we can somehow even out the ledger of our sin and our good works because when we see Christ crucified, when we see him dead, lifeless on that cross, it's a portrayal Of the actual state of our sin. And it brings us into a revelation of the wickedness of sin and the stench of sin. And as you realize that, that Jesus has put on your curse, you actually start to enter into the power of the cross. And so the power of the cross is. The answer, it's why. (laughs) Why would Jesus do this? Why would a perfect, holy, righteous life be wasted, be vanquished by the cross? And you get this in Isaiah just explicitly. And that the death of Christ is a lot of things. There's a lot going on there. It's an example of love. It's a demonstration of God's love for the world. It's a demonstration of how humans ought to love other humans. It is a beautiful metaphor of death and resurrection. But at the very center of it is this idea that Jesus is our substitute, and that as our substitute, he takes our penalty that our sin deserves. And you see this expressed in Isaiah, just very, very obviously. The language is super clear. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement, whose chastisement? The chastisement of God. (laughs) A holy, righteous God punishing sin. It's retribution of a creation in rebellion that is put onto Jesus. And that payment satisfies perfectly the wrath of God towards sin for all who believe in Jesus. And so you see, the the power of the cross comes in our forgiveness. As we trust in Jesus... His punishment is our punishment. We're no longer anticipating a future punishment for sin because the just God has also become the justifier of sinners in the death of Christ. We're set free from the power of sin and death because of his death. It's what Isaiah is talking about when he says the chastisement brings you peace. And by his wounds, you are healed. This is, um, it's hard to believe this, just to be perfectly honest. This is something that you have to fight for to trust that this is true. Because this is a definitive statement about something that's already happened that now has implications for us currently, right? What are we healed by? Are we healed by our experience of healing? Are we ultimately healed because we experience healing? That's not what Isaiah says. How are we healed, friends? We are healed by his wounds. His wounds have happened. They're past tense. It's over. It's done with. The chastisement of God onto Christ because of our sin has happened. Therefore, we are brought into peace, into shalom, into harmony. And so the power of the cross is entrusting this in a broken world, in a world where we haven't experienced this yet because we're still in time moving forward, awaiting the day when it's perfected here but it's already happened. His wounds have healed you. His wounds have healed your sin. The gap, the distance, the separation between you and God because of your sin, that gap that you feel, where you feel the absence of God in your life, it's been healed by Christ. You've been healed from the sin of others. And this is a hard one hard one to believe, because we still feel it. We still feel injustice. We're still abused. We're still taken advantage of. We still have grief and memories that are traumatic. And yet, when we think about the cross, when we think about what happens on the cross, we see the peace that we have, because what it means is that God does not overlook injustice. He deals with it fully and finally. And you can know this because his sin, your sins were put upon him and dealt with completely. And so you can trust that we have a just and righteous God who does not overlook the sins that have been done to you, but is patiently waiting a day to make all things new and to wipe away every tear from every crying eye. And so we see this power, this forgiving power, this healing power, this power of the cross that comes in what is happening there with Jesus, the God-man, offering himself as an offering for all sin demonstrating to a world that the holiness of God is not asleep, but is awake and active. But there is a danger, I think, especially for us, there's a danger in staying in the power of the cross, because what we can kind of do is we can kind of turn the cross into a consumer good that we just kind of use to feel better. Like, we'll take the cross and the power of it and we'll just kind of say, okay, I don't want to feel guilty for my sin anymore, so I'm going to think about the cross. And, like, yes, I don't want you to feel guilty for that either. But there's more to it. There's more to it. There's more going on than just kind of, like, relieving your psychological guilt. When you... See what's happening on the cross. When you understand that Jesus, one person with two natures, human and divine, is on the cross for you, but also for his own glory, you start to see the glory of the cross. And that's where I want us to go. I want us to come into the glory of the cross. Because when you are beholding the glory of the cross, all of a sudden, the whole world is kind of flipped upside down on us. Because in a world that tells us that our lives are about us, where we get handed tools, powerful tools, the best tools that we can possibly create to basically perpetuate self-worship in our culture, we have to be reminded that we are not God. And the cross, the glory of the cross reminds us that we are not God. And so I want us to understand the cross is ultimately, ultimately it's a manifestation of God's glory. It's something that you look at and you see the glory of God. Here's a couple of ways that that's happening. When you look at the cross, remember we've talked a lot about the human nature being the nature of Christ that is dying, right? Like The nature that Jesus took on is the one that dies on the cross. In Philippians, that's made clear. He became a servant. He humbled himself by being a servant and becoming obedient. And so, what is going on is that the human nature of of Jesus is offering an obedient life to a father. What kind of obedience? Perfect obedience. Obedience that went even to the point of death. We've already talked about the horrors of the cross. I just want to talk about the limits of our obedience outside of Christ. Because if I got, let's just not even consider death. Let's just say something that "Mm, God wants me to do something where I'm going to feel a little bit uncomfortable. I'm going to say, hey God, that's great that you want me to forgive that person and have an awkward conversation But don't you know that I'm an Enneagram (laughs) 3? And so I think probably somebody else needs to do that. Or like that's just not that important. My obedience, our obedience is so imperfect. It's so limited. Even in small ways, small acts of faith. But Jesus' obedience was perfect. Perfect obedience even to the point of death, death on a cross. And his human nature, the obedient nature, real human obedience is ultimately what is offered to God by Jesus. And as Jesus is hanging on that cross, the last words in the Gospel of Luke, the last words that he says, the last words of his life of obedience Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Into your hands, Father, goes this spirit of perfect obedience, this spirit of perfect innocence, crucified for a people who don't want him. Into your hands, Father, I commit this spirit. That's what the divine, the human nature, excuse me, Is doing on the cross. It's offering a sacrifice. It's offering a sacrifice to atone for sin, and it's offering a sacrifice that is perfect, unblemished, that rises up to please God. The divine nature is doing something different. Same person, there's not two Jesuses, but the natures are working in this event very differently. You see, what happens when Jesus goes to the cross, he is still God, and God is there hanging on the cross. But is God dying? Is God threatened? Is the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, for a second written out of the divine nature? No. Not in any way, not even for a second. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow forever. That's his divine nature. And so the divine nature is brought into this proximity of death. It's brought into the room, as it were, with death, with the forces of evil, with sin, the consequences of sin. The most powerful enemy that humanity has ever faced, undefeated against humanity. And the divine nature on the cross vanquishes death, destroys it, says to death, Take your best shot. I am the principle, the source of life. Death cannot touch me. And you see the victory of God portrayed. In the most unthinkable moment in human history, where you have the one perfect human dead, the divine nature conquers. The divine nature conquers, and it goes into the realm of death and sets free all of the souls that are captive to it. All of the people who are waiting for God's deliverance All of the people who are trusting in God to ultimately overcome and win. And you see the victory of God in the death of Christ. Because even though the human nature is dead, the divine nature lives. And the human nature doesn't stay dead. And then this is what we're going to talk about in the next couple weeks but it's part of the glory of the cross. It's this idea of Jesus giving up his spirit. He gives up his spirit. He commits his spirit to the hands of the Father. He trusts God perfectly, even with that. Saying, God, I don't understand what's going on here, but I know that you are trustworthy. So here you are. Here is my life. Here is my death. It's yours. What does the Father do with the Spirit of Christ? Well, the Father first is greatly pleased. He rejoices at the obedience of human flesh. And then he and the Son send that Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of perfect obedience to us, to all who believe, so that we are now clothed in that spirit of Christ. His obedience is now our obedience. His death is our death. His life is our life. We have the righteousness of Christ put upon us by the Spirit of Christ, and it's glorious. And so what what do you do with that? How do you respond to that? Well, a couple of ways that we've already kind of talked about, you can't respond to it with indifference. It's just not an option. What is being offered and discussed in this passage, it's too absurd. You either have to completely reject it, or it has to take over everything. It has to consume you. You have to live your life revolving around this truth. And so, I think one of the ways that we respond to this is we simply kind of look at our life and and say, like, in light of this, in light of the power of the cross for me, in light of the glory of the cross in light of this gift of the Spirit that has come into my life, giving me this beautiful relationship with a God that is more majestic than I can fathom, in light of that, where am I withholding? Where am I protecting? Where am I acting not like Christ, who commits even his death to the Father? What are you protecting from God? What are you worried about losing by obeying, by following Christ? And what would happen if you acted in line, in accordance with Jesus? Said, Father, into your hands. I commit this relationship. Into your hands, I commit my identity. Into your hands, I commit my work. Into your hands, I commit my illness. Into your hands, I commit my mental health. Into your hands, I commit this child. Into your hands, Father. It's a picture of radical trust that flows out of the life, the death, And yes, the resurrection of Christ. Because we can do that. Full assurance, full faith. Because we're not trying to find resurrection from our lives. We're not trying to find resurrection power from the things that we have, the things that we want, who we are. We get to receive it as a gift of God. And three days probably seems like an eternity As you're in it, it probably seemed like an eternity for the mother of Jesus. Probably seemed like an eternity for the disciples. But only three days later, Jesus rose again. And so we get to look next week at this truth. He is risen. The cross was not the final word. And in his resurrection, we see the victory and the glory of God as he resurrects human flesh to show us that an eternal life awaits all who are trusting in Jesus to the glory of his grace. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. God, it's hard to articulate even the power that is present at the cross. It makes us a little bit nervous, makes us uneasy. And so, God, I ask that you would help us, that you would help us to not be people who just kind of passed by the cross of Christ and went about our everyday lives completely missing the power and the significance. And that also, Lord, that we wouldn't be people who try to appropriate the cross for our own purposes, our own ends. But instead that you would help us to receive the forgiveness, the healing that you have for us. And as we do that, we are drawn up into your glory, your beauty, your majesty, your design for your son to come to this earth, to live, to die, to resurrect, and to return. And so God, during this season, I ask that you would help us to wait for that with full faith, that you would grow our faith, that you would nourish it, that you would encourage us, and that we would allow the cross to be the foundation of our lives. Pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.